So last week we looked at a story of a church, and this church was in the first century, and this church was started by the Apostle Paul. And Paul was uh, really a missionary for the, the church who traveled throughout the known world, throughout, traveled throughout the Roman Empire, spreading the message of Jesus. And he would go into these communities and he would begin these churches. He would share the way of Jesus with people and he would tell them about Jesus and they would begin these unique communities all throughout the Roman Empire. And a lot of these churches actually started in houses and this church started in a house as well. But like many of the communities around, around them as, as Paul would start these churches, they faced intense persecution, and they faced this intense persecution almost right away as soon as the church started. And so Paul wrote to these churches, and he would encourage them amid the circumstances they were experiencing. And Paul did that as well with this church community. And we read this last week. These are some words from a letter that he wrote to them. It's in 1 Thessalonians. The church was in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul said in chapter 5, verse 16 of this letter, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. So this church that he had started, he, he was with them, he was, he was celebrating the birth of this new church community. They begin to face this intense persecution. The church leaders took Paul and said, hey, Paul, you need to get out of here. You need to continue the role that you have to play to continue to start these churches. You get out. We're going to continue to experience this, but we're going to stay in this community and be the church of Jesus here. And so Paul from afar wrote these words to them. And he says, listen, I, I understand the circumstances are difficult for you. I understand that what you're facing is harder than you anticipated. And Paul says, Despite those circumstances, here's what you should do amid those circumstances. Rejoice always. So every moment, be full of joy. Pray continually. So be in a constant place of prayer. And give thanks in all circumstances. Giving thanks no matter what it is they're going through. So as Paul wrote this, he laid out really how they should act amid those difficult circumstances that they found themselves in. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And you know, we read the letter, and if you didn't know Paul's story, you might think, well, that, that seems easy, Paul. It seems easy for you to say because you're not here in these circumstances. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, Paul, but have you experienced that? And in fact, Paul had. Paul knew what it was like to experience persecution and suffering. In fact, right before he went to Thessalonica, right before he started this church, Paul had experience that had framed so much of what he was saying to them in this letter and the way that he encouraged them. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because we read from this story last week. I told you this exact story last week, and I read the passage I'm about to read to you. We read that last week, but I want to look at it again this week. But I'm going to keep reading from a point where we stopped last week, because what we find there is going to help us as we continue to explore this idea of giving thanks, particularly, as Paul said, giving thanks in all circumstances. 
So if we go to Acts 16, we find the story that happened right before, tra- right before Paul traveled to Thessalonica. Listen, listen what happened to him. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. So Paul and Silas had an experience that sent them to prison because of the way that they followed Jesus, because of what they said about Jesus, and and they end up in prison for their faith. And so as they're sitting in prison, this happens to them. It says, at midnight they were praying, they were singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, this is where we stopped reading this story last week. And it's a great story. I took some notes on it. Paul and Silas worship despite their circumstances. It tells us that a miracle took place that released them from the prison they were in. The jailer who lived and worked at the prison gave his life to Jesus and was baptized along with his entire household. And so if you're taking notes, if you're looking at the story, you're saying, what more could they have been thankful for? But the story doesn't end there. And it seems odd to us because if I was writing the story, if you were writing the story, you would probably end at this point because we would be thankful for the blessings that have taken place. That's kind of how we write our stories. We, we want to tell everybody about the blessings that have taken place in life, and we want to talk about the ways that we're thankful for those blessings, especially as we come to Thanksgiving, Right? We sit around and say, what are we thankful for in our lives? And typically the things that we say are, hey, I am thankful for the blessings that have taken place in my life. (laughs) Paul and Silas come together. People say, what are you thankful for? Well, I'm thankful for this miracle that took place. I'm thankful that this man gave his life to Jesus. I'm thankful that his entire household was baptized. What else would I have to be thankful for? But the author goes on. And so I want to continue the story and see what happens next. So it says, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Now, there's a couple fascinating notes 
in, from this, these uh, several verses right here. The first thing we see is that Paul and Silas voluntarily stayed in the prison. You know, they were upset about the circumstances that got them there. And Paul was ready to prove a point that they were unjustly imprisoned. And I, I really, I, I love this aspect of this because I think it's really easy to miss this and this very human response that Paul has for his experience. So we have, we have two sides almost happening here. We have the night before this incredible spiritual experience that occurs. That, that Paul is sitting with Silas, they begin to worship, and they experience God working in that circumstance, the, the, the jail busting open, and they're freed from their prison. They, they go from there, and they have this incredible experience with this jailer. They tell him about Jesus. He chooses to follow Jesus. The, his, he's baptized. His entire household is baptized. This spiritual experience continues. And then it's almost like the, the, there's like a flip of a page here where the author tells us, he's like, he's like, okay, okay, let me finish the story for you. Let me tell you what happens. So it says, when it was daylight. So we go from night, now we're into daylight. There's a transition of time that takes place. And I think it's really cool because we don't really know what happened in the in-between. What was the party like? What were the conversations like? What were Paul and Silas and the jailer talking about? What kind of questions did he have for them? So we get sort of this, um, we get to kind of just imagine what was taking place there. And then you sort of think the story's going to end. He's going to say, hey, be on your way, and they're going to take off, and they're going to go on. But instead, it says when it was daylight, the magistrates show up, and they tell the, the jailer, okay, go ahead and release those men. But what we find out is that Paul and Silas, they said, well, wait a minute. You put us in prison unjustly. You put us in that prison and had no business putting us there. In fact, and he uses this card, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, which means he would have been in prison. Uh, he didn't have the trial he should have had. There's some pieces there that didn't take place. I mean, he's using this card and saying, hey, you guys are in big trouble when the Roman authorities find out what you did to us as Roman citizens. We have special standing. So, you know, it's great because they, the officers, you know, freak out here. They report this to the magistrates. It says they were alarmed. They're going, uh-oh, you know, we really, we really messed up here. We really made a mistake. And then, so it says in 39, they came to appease them, escorted them from the prison, requested them to leave the city. And I love this picture. This is these magistrates coming to them and going, we are so sorry. Is, is there anything that we can do? I, I had no idea. And you've seen people flip like this, right? I mean, you, maybe you flipped like this. You were mad, you were upset about something, you were, you were angry, you know? And then all of a sudden you realize you're, maybe you're in the wrong. Somebody else looks and says, oh, wait a minute. I am so sorry. You're not going to tell anybody about this, are you? You're not going to tell the authorities about this, right? Uh, can, can, we, can we just pretend this didn't happen? Can you, can you just leave the city and we'll just kind of pretend that this story never took place? Meanwhile, the author, Luke, is sitting over there writing the story. and He's like, I'm writing this down because these magistrates look like idiots. We are going to put this down in history and it's going to stay there forever. Now, there's all kinds of things going on here, but what I want to point out is this because I think it's so easy to miss. We see the miracle, but we miss the way that Paul and Silas have interpreted this miracle and what was taking place in their lives. See, I think what's important here is that Paul is ready to prove this point, that he's unjustly in prison, because what it shows us is that Paul didn't think God put them in those circumstances. 
Paul recognizes. And he says, look, you put us here unjustly. You did this. And that's a critical point for us to recognize and to see. But Paul didn't say, hey, God put us in this moment. This happened. No, he knew that God was with them. And this is an important distinction for us to make. Paul didn't think God put them in their circumstances. Paul knew that God was with them in the circumstances. Paul knew that it was the magistrates. It was the way that they treated him. It was the way that they looked at them as followers of Jesus. That's what put them in prison. But it was God that was with them in those circumstances, working with them amid those circumstances. Now, Paul comes back to this in a letter that he wrote to a church in the city of Rome. He says this, And we know, and we know, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I focused last week that we see from Paul's story in this writing that we should be thankful in all circumstances. And look at his reasoning for this. His reasoning is that God is at work in all things. Paul and Silas can worship in the prison because they know God didn't put us in these circumstances, but he is at work in all these circumstances. And we can trust that he will bring good from whatever we're facing, even when it's hard. And so we, we can look at scriptures, stories around us, our own stories, and see how God was with us. But why? Why is this God at work for our good? That's the question that we should ask when we read something like this. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. How do we know he works for the good? And how do we know that he is good? So to answer that question, we come to a passage of scripture that's the center of this sermon series. The, the, the passage of scripture that is leading us to ask all of these questions. It's the passage of scripture that came to mind as I began to think about preaching on giving thanks. This passage came to my mind over and over and over again. And for Paul, it would have been an even more familiar passage, a refrain that he would have sung, something that he would have recited his entire life in the synagogues and the temples that he grew up in. See, we find these words that would have been familiar to Paul in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in a songbook called the Psalms. Now, it's important to point out, this is only one place of many where this refrain shows up. In fact, these words are repeated throughout the Scriptures. They come up over and over and over again. And really what I did was I chose one place where we see these words. But again, they come up over and over and over again. And I think they are the driving force behind Paul's understanding of his experience in prison, of Paul's understanding so of what he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. I think it's the understanding that undergirds this Romans passage that Paul can say with confidence, and we we know, like we absolutely know, we have evidence and knowledge and clarity that in all things, God works together for good. In all things, amid all circumstance, God is working for good. And the words that undergird all of this for Paul, we find in Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So this led me to ask some questions. Give thanks to the Lord. 
Well, why should we give thanks? We talked about that last week, Paul says, because you can thank him in all circumstances, right? But why? Give thanks to the Lord. Why? And it answers, it goes on, it says, because he is good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Which again should lead us to ask another question. One of the best things we can do is when we read a passage of scripture, say, but why? Why? Ask more questions, which will lead us further down and lead us into, into really a conversation and a dialogue that has been going on for a really long time. So give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he is good. But what does it mean to be good? I mean, LeBron James is good, right? My wife's cookies are really good, right? I mean, there are all sorts of things you can say, hey, that is good. Man, for me, like a Porsche 911, that is very, very good, right? You have all of these things. Hey, the, the, that, that turkey, the way that you, man, that, that is to you, that is good. I mean, stuffing is good, right? All of these things we talk about, we, we say that they're good, and I could make a list of all these things that are good, but what I want us to see is that the word used here is a very specific word for good, and this word has this incredible nuance that I think is going to give us a different meaning on the outlook of good, and so what I want us to do is begin to see this word and begin to see, okay, so there is, there is good, there is Joe's Cookies good. There is LeBron James good. There is Porsche 911 good. There are these things that are good over here good. But then there's a whole other category of good. And this is the good that we connect with to God. The same thing is kind of true of the word awesome. Something's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that right there, that guitar solo, that was awesome, right? But the category of awesome for God is a completely different kind of category, completely different kind of awesome. It's the true thing here for, the same thing is true here for good. There's a category for good that we talk about these things. And then there's a category for good that connects with God. And I want to see this category of good because this is going to explain why Paul can have such a confidence that God is good. So the first place that we find this word for good is in the very beginning of our Bibles, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1. Now, this passage in Genesis, in its original language of Hebrew, we've talked about this before, is in poetic form. And so I'm always reminded to be careful, the context here isn't a literal telling of events. It is a poetic telling of theology. So the author's purpose here isn't to force us to adopt a pre-modern view of science, but to articulate their theology. And the, the reason I tell you this is for a couple different reasons. The first reason is that this can trip us up and cause us to, to live in that reality where we say our faith is in, in contrast or in, in, in a fight with our science. We don't have to do that. Because what's happening here is poetry, poetic language that is used to explain theology. And what theology is, is the author telling us an understanding that they have about God and who God is, and what that means about who God is for them and who they are. So what the author is getting at is an understanding of God. 
And so using language and metaphor and images that are familiar to them, using story and myth that's familiar to them in their context in the ancient world, they begin to explain this theological concept of God's goodness. And that understanding is continued and repeated throughout the scriptures. And that understanding of God is found in how God is described in his creation, how God actually described his creation, which God described as good. So let's look at these words and see what is this author trying to show us about who they believe God is. Genesis 1, 1 through 4, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God saw that the light was good. The poem continues with God creating land and oceans and trees and birds and plants and bugs and all the living things that surround us. And then God creates humans and gives them a responsibility to steward this creation that he has created. And then as the chapter closes, we come to these penultimate words in Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now, the word used here for good is the same word that we see in Psalm 136.1 to describe God. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And this word for good that is different than Jill's cookies good or LeBron James good or whatever category you have for things in your life that are good, the word for good that is used here to describe God that is such a, a completely different understanding of our understanding of good, this word for good is a simple Hebrew word, tov. And the word here, it's, it's a simple, simple, simple word. But our understanding of this word and the critical reality around this very simple word is explosive in our understanding of God. And it changes the conversation about how we understand good. It changes the conversation when someone says, well, if God is good, then why? If God is good, why this, right? Because we have a category for good over here that needs to look very different than the category of good that is here. Now, I want to do a further study on this word in a later sermon series. I think we'll probably really, I would love to look at all the, the, the ways that good shows up in the scriptures, but there's something that I want us to see here today that I think is very specific in our context in the sermon series. See, as we look at the Genesis story, we see that Tov has more nuance than the way we think about good. Again, it's not, it's not LeBron good. It's not cookies good. It's a whole different level of good, and that good is a good that creates more good. It's a, it's, a, it's a good that creates more good. God sees light because light brings light and light and light. God creates, and it creates this perpetual motion of creation, life without end, and that's what he calls good. 
when God creates these plants and these trees and they, they have this seed that can create more light. It's that miracle that we see. I mean, I see it in my backyard every single year that everything begins to die, the, the, the leaves begin to fall, the seeds hit the ground, come to spring, and all of a sudden there's brand new trees that are popping up. And there's all of this stuff that is happening, and God looks at this, this perpetual motion of creation and says, and this is very good. It's a perpetual motion of creation and life without an end. One way I described it is this in my notes. I said, it's a kind of thriving, nestled in the way things are supposed to be. That God took the formless and the empty, the desolate and the dark, and created life, light, and flourishing. And God didn't stop there. See, this is where the story begins to come in for us. When sin and death entered the world, God responded with the incarnational presence of Jesus. God didn't give up on this world, but sought to restore the good. And Jesus showed us good and a way of life that is flourishing and brings more goodness, that brings more life into this world. Through, so through Jesus, God says, listen, listen, let's come back. I'm not giving up on this world because I know there is goodness. Let me bring this good into this world to teach this flourishing, this way of life that brings about more goodness. We see this in John 8, 12. It says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And these words of Jesus echo the very first words of Genesis. The light is good, and Jesus is that light. And then Jesus tells us to share that light with the world. The light was tove and set the stage for all the flourishing tove that would take place in the world. If we come back up to the first chapter of John, uh, to the words that we really read about this time of year as we come closer to Christmas, we see this echo as John made this connection to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So even amid the reality of our circumstances, even amid the reality of the darkness of our circumstances, the light shines. The tove that comes from God is not overcome. And then listen, listen. We are to reflect that tove the goodness of God that leads to a flourishing found in the sharing of God's love and his grace. As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people give light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, fascinating word shows up, 
good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, we see this connection. We come all the way back to the story of creation. We see all throughout then as people then begin to define the goodness of God as this perpetuating motion, this flourishing, this goodness that brings more goodness continues on to Jesus who says, now you, you follow me for I am the light. I am the life. I am what is truly good. And I will show you how to bring more good into this world, which God looks at and says, now that is very, very good. Even when Jesus was rejected and crucified, God wasn't done. In the resurrection, we see that even death has no hold on the life-giving power of God. See, this is why no matter our circumstances, we can give thanks to God. Because what is good isn't found only in our blessings and is not extinguished by our circumstances. Let me say that again because I want us to hear this. I want us to, to really understand this and, and make this a central part of how we understand what it means that God is good. What is good isn't found only in our blessings. And what is good is not extinguished by our circumstances. Good is found in the God who is good and walks with us in all things, bringing light to darkness, flourishing in pain, and even life in death. This is at the center of a theology of goodness, a theology of who God is, and in a theology that tells us in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Why? Because in God's essence, God is good. God creates good, and God works in good. Good is flourishing. Good is life-giving. I just want us to think for just a few moments, connecting this to our own stories, seeing the ways that we have experienced the goodness of God. What are those moments that someone has shown you grace and that grace became a perpetuating motion of grace in your life? That is good. What is a way in which mercy has come into your life and has been multiplied as you showed mercy into the lives of those around you? That is where we find the goodness of God. Where have you experienced love? And how does that love go out overflowing into those around us? When we lean into that, that is when we experience the goodness of God. This is why amid any circumstance that we experience, we can say God is at work doing good in all things. He is at work for the good because he's bringing flourishing, he's bringing life into all of our circumstances. If we would see it, if we would grab it, accept it, and let it overflow out of us 
into the people, into the experiences around us in our circumstances, then I think God looks and says, and that, that is very good. And we find this example through the life and through the death and through the resurrection, through the teachings of Jesus, teaching us how to bring, be the people who bring that light into our world. Just as God says, I separate the light that is good from the darkness. He says, I separate the light from the darkness in your lives. And he says, and I want you to do the same. Bring that light into this world and bring that which is good. And that is who God is. And that is why we can say, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder that you are a whole different category of good. May we look at these things in our lives that we call good, that we really, we recognize aren't lasting, aren't everlasting, aren't forever. Things that we call good that aren't truly good in the way that you are good. Let us have a theology of Tov when we talk about the goodness of God. When we sing songs that remind us God is so good, may we see his goodness overflowing, you see your goodness overflowing in our lives. And may we see that that goodness, when it is good, overflows into the world around us. Let us bring peop be people who bring grace and mercy and life and love into this world. Becoming people of that tov goodness that defines exactly who you are for us. It's your name that we pray today. Amen.